We will study the Word of God today, and we will be reading the main text as our basis. So, uh, wherever you are, my, I request the congregation to read them with me, and uh, we will be reading from uh, Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 to 35, and Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 to 75, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And so, if you um, have your Bibles with you at home, so please read with me. I'll be flashing them also uh, on the screen. Let us read. Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 to 35. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. May the Lord be worshipped and praised by the reading of his word. And let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you today for leading us here to worship you and to glorify your name. Father, I pray that the words that we will hear today will come from you, illumine our hearts, open our souls so that we may be receptive to your word and apply them in our lives. Be with your people today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. As a review, last week, Pastor Will discussed with us the call of Jesus Christ. And that call is a call to a deep relationship a call to a costly path. And I'm very thankful that he said it's a very costly path because following Jesus uh, is never easy. And lastly, he said there's a call for us to press on. And I would, I would like to pick up on that because a call to press on means despite the challenges, despite the setbacks, the difficulties, we will continue to follow Jesus because life, as we know it, isn't always rosy. There will be difficult times. We will experience pain. 
we are in the process called sanctification, we will have problems and challenges in this life. We never preach here that you won't have problems once you have Jesus in your life. You will have them. And Pastor will also talk about this, one of the prominent characters in the Bible, in the gospel narrative, and his name is Peter. So if you're talking about failure, you're talking about struggles, an epic scandal, I think Peter could relate with you. And Peter, along with another character in the Bible, will give us a glimpse of what it means to fail, what it means to fall, what it means to enter and to be in an epic scandal. So uh, our title today, I have carved around this, When Your World Starts to Crumble. Have you experienced this? I don't know if you have experienced this, that there's a moment or there's a time in your life that your world crumbled. So before we proceed, let me ask you a few questions. What if we fall? What if our world starts to crumble down, not for the things done to us by other people? Because if the reason why our world is crumbling down is because other people have done it to us, that it's easy to blame those people. But what if our world crumbled down because of the things that we did to ourselves? What if we had a really bad fall that caused us to lose everything that we value? What if we have more than this? What if despite our self-will, we still suffer from, for instance, a mental illness, an addiction, a tendency that seems not to go away? And you tried fighting it, but to no avail, you, keep your, you find yourself over and over again struggling with it every day, failing, fading, and faltering. And so I ask this question, what is the promise of the gospel to us? How can the gospel be good news to us for us who have fallen and for us who are probably battling a mental illness. So today we have two individuals, and I've read the passage about Peter, and let's look into the scriptures about these two individuals. Let's study our li this, the lives of these people. I have two. And um, there are so many people in the Bible uh, who were disgraced, who had, a, who had a tragic fall, and we won't be able to discuss them all today. But I have now two individuals. I hope you could relate and we could all relate with these two individuals. We have Peter and John Mark. John Mark isn't very known because there's no one direct narrative of him in the, in the scriptures. But we will point uh, uh, this, this story a little later. But I will focus on these characters because I want us to ask and I want us to explore what happens when we fall, what goes into our mind, what goes into the mind and to the heart and to the spirit and the soul of John, Mark, and Peter uh, when they fell and when they have fallen. The next question, what should we do as people of God 
And how should we respond as a people of God when someone falls? Or when someone is struggling with something or battling something? How should we respond as people of God? And without boxing the act of God, how does God intervene into our lives? How would He resolve and how would He rebuild our lives when our world crumbled down? And so, I wouldn't make it very, very long. Let's go to the first character. And our first character, as we have read here, is Peter. Now, Peter, as you know, I've read a story, is one of the closest disciples of Jesus. And you know he's the confessor. He's the one who confesses very beautiful and very powerful proclamation. You are Jesus Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well, you know that he's an impulsive leader. He's, a, he's an impulsive person, uh, but he's a leader material. He's brave and he's very bold. And nights before Jesus' crucifixion, he made this statement. He made this proclamation. He said, you know, I will not fall away, Jesus. I will not leave you. Perhaps he would want to say, I will not leave you nor forsake you. But Jesus said, no, you will. You will deny me three times. And she said, no. And then Peter said, no, no, I won't do that. I'm, I'm Peter. I am the one who said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Uh, you see, I am strong. I will not deny you. But we already know the story. He denied Jesus. He did. Now, let's go to the other character, John Mark, or we know him as Mark. Now, John Mark grew up in a Christian home. We could read his narrative in, in bits and pieces in Acts and in some parts of the, the gospel and in the epistles. John Mark grew up in a Christian home, we would suppose, because in Acts 12.12, it mentioned there that he was the son of Mary, not the Mary that we know, but another woman named Mary. And in Colossians uh, chapter 4, verse 10, I, I won't be reading them, but I'm flashing them on the screen for you to look uh, up on these verses. He's the cousin of Barnabas. So, John Mark or Mark grew up in a Christian home. And in Acts 12, verses uh, 25, he accompanied Paul and Barnabas in their missionary journey. But for some reasons, the Bible did not say, he departed and left the missionary team in Pamphylia and returned to Jerusalem. And Paul was extremely disappointed uh, with John Mark. And after some time, Barnabas, his cousin, uh, asked Paul, can we have John Mark to be part of our team again? And of course, Apostle Paul being a very alpha, I would assume, and of course it was very realistic that, you know, the missionary journey wouldn't be easy for a person like John Mark. Perhaps Paul said, no, we will not have John Mark join us. But Barnabas wanted 
John Mark to join them. And so that caused a very sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. The Bible says in Acts chapter 15, uh, uh, chapter 15, verse 39, it says they had a sharp disagreement. I think that's a very good way to say sila. They had a very sharp disagreement that caused them to separate ways. I mean, if that was just a conversation, I don't think they would separate ways. I think they quarreled. And, you know, the writer said, sharp disagreement. Very, very creative way of putting up words. So, we have seen these two individuals, and clearly, they're epic failures. And so, this leads us to our first point here. We are looking into our action. What have I done? What went wrong with Peter, for instance? You know, Peter felt very strong. We know already in the gospel narratives that he is a very strong man, he's a very bold person. In fact, in the narrative, that, like, what we've, like what we've just read a while ago, he said, Jesus, I will not leave you. He said that. I will not leave you. Some people will leave you, but I won't. In fact, it's not just Peter who said that. If we will return to the verse, all disciples, all of the disciples said the same. It's not just Peter. But Peter's pronouncement was recorded, I think, precisely because he was very bold proclaiming that, saying that, I will not leave you, Jesus. But we know that Peter denied Jesus. What happened? What was behind that action? We should understand that for every action that we do, there's an underlying cause, there's an underlying reason why people do what they do. Do you agree with me on that? We don't, we don't, we don't live in a vacuum. We do things because we have reasons doing it or there are underlying reasons why we do things, uh, the things that we do. And so here we could say, what happened to Peter? What's wrong with Peter? Peter perhaps felt afraid of his life, that he could not save himself, let alone Jesus. When they were arrested, how much more? Jesus. He became afraid of his own life. But he just promised that a while ago. Peter felt weak and unable. And what's wrong with John Mark or Mark? Why did he leave Paul and Barnabas? We could just assume that perhaps when he was thrown into the missionary journey, he realized that it wasn't easy. Did he become depressed? Did he become lonely? Or did he become so stressed with Paul and Barnabas? Because, you know, Paul is very straightforward. It's, it's very alpha. It's very um, uh, on the go. In other words, in our language, si Apostle Pablo ayaw niya ng mga taong papatay-patay. Na-stress ba si John Mark? Because the Bible did not tell us. Was he very young? And he was thrown into that, and he realized that I, could do, I couldn't do this anymore. I wanted to quit. 
I could somehow relate to John Mark. Did he feel the pressure? You know, every Monday after worship service, I always feel I like, I like quitting. And so, by looking into these actions and to the epic failures of these people, we could somehow relate. Now, I have no intentions to reduce the consequences of our actions or the actions of these people. But we can just pause and look into why people do the things that they do and why people feel the way they feel. Because I want us, as people of God, have a glimpse to the person who has fallen, to the person who succumbed to sin, to the person who committed a grave error, to the person who made a shameful mistake, who became addicted to something, to the person who is depressed and anxious, to the person who is battling irrational thoughts, or to the person who has suicidal tendencies. The feeling of those who fall, that guilt, that regret, that devastation. Peter felt that. For the case of Peter, it was his own doing. He promised something that he couldn't do. Now for John Mark, I don't know, perhaps he really became very depressed. And that's what we do when we fall, when we are battling into something, when we succumb to sin, when we committed a grave error or we made a shameful mistake or when we are addicted to something. Either we walk away and scourge ourselves. We cover up. And that's a natural thing any person would do. I would have done that as well. Honestly. If I made a terrible mistake, perhaps I would even do graver things more than what Peter and John Mark did. I would have covered up. I will walk away. But you see, look uh, into Peter's action. He was one of the closest to Jesus. Why did it happen to him? He had big revelations. He promised not to desert Jesus. All things point out that he will not fall. That he won't make this mistake. He will really fight for Jesus. He was very bold. But you see, no matter how bold he is, no matter how great revelations that he made and was made known to him, no matter how great things he witnessed, no matter how close he was with, the disciple, with other disciples and with Jesus himself, he still fell. He still failed himself and failed Jesus. We see here that Peter was, it's about himself. The reliance on his own promise, the reliance on his own strength. He thought he could do it all along by his own strength. And when we look into John Mark, the Bible didn't tell us much, but was he also afraid? 
And what I'm saying here, did he feel the pressure? Did he feel, he, did he feel some depression along the way? Because if we will read between the time that he joined Barnabas and Paul and the time that he left Pamphylia, he witnessed and he had a, for, a taste of what it means to be part of the missionary team. So if you're uh, thinking about the mission, I think John Mark's uh, character would be a very good character analysis. But looking into the action of these two individuals, I want us to look also into our actions. Where have we fallen into? Have we fallen into addiction? I will name it. Have we fallen into addiction to lust, to pornography, to illegal substances, drugs, or gambling? Have we become addicted to our sports, to our social media? Those are, I think, a little bit lighter than I have mentioned previously. Or have we become addicted to even relationships, or love, or affirmation? What if anyone here amongst us today, or perhaps the people inside your home, because no one is in the in this hall at this very moment, what if the people inside your home are also addicted to pornography, drugs, or gambling? What if any one of us here, on the other hand, is struggling with depression, anxiety? And name the big ticket sins, name the big ticket items. Because we have two individuals here, one who probably struggled with pride, sin, and the other struggled with some form I would consider, I would try to offer, struggled with uh, some form of personality uh, sort of disorder or mental illness perhaps because we don't know what happened to John Mark and both of them felt trapped and when you're into addiction when you're uh, experiencing mental illness you are you feel trapped you are in a cycle you are dr drowned by your own misery and sometimes calling them weak calling them oh you lack faith don't help them they just don't make sense to them. And you see, I think if someone here amongst us is like John Mark, who become depressed or become anxious or had a panic attack, perhaps that's why he backed out from, from the, the missionary journey. And let us consider that for a moment. Let us look into the, to the idea that perhaps he might have probably felt that. Why did he become afraid suddenly? Or just plainly, why did he become so homesick? Because it could happen to us. It could happen to our very homes. In our midst are probably people who wanted to commit suicide. And we already know that this is a mental health issue. This is not about, oh, probably that person just lacks faith. And we now know better that this is not just about lacking in spirituality. 
we attended a seminar on mental health, and I think it's it's nice and it's uh, uh, it's good that we're looking into these mental health issues not only on a spiritual aspect but also in uh, mental, physical, or physiological aspect, and all of them together. You're looking at the individual holistically, and the role of faith in. Uh, the restoration and rebuilding of these people. I've mentioned that because it happened to me. I think I have shared here with you uh, in this pulpit my testimony on anxiety and perhaps now depression. You know that I had a previous work in the law office and I had, now that I could name it, I had panic attacks because at that time I didn't know it. I just thought that I'm starting to or I'm just adjusting with a new environment. I came from the Philippines. I don't know anyone here in Singapore. I don't know a soul. I don't have friends here. You know, I'm a very sociable person. I have a lot of friends back home. And so I was uprooted there. I joined my wife here. I don't have a friend. I don't have friends. It's a new environment to me. I was shocked with the way people here work. Uh, you can't be friends necessarily with the people that you are with in your workplace, unlike in the Philippines, like you can be a comare, compadre to your workmates. But here, no, you can't do that. And every time I would go to the office, I would feel so anxious. I feel vomiting. And we would stay, my office in the CBD, so, and Donna is, is, is on Covan, so we would stop at Dobigot for a while. And I would ask her to go there very early because I just wanted to sit there. It, Dobiga doesn't look like, like the way it looks like now. Because before, it's like an open space. I would sit there. We would take our breakfast, buy from 7-Eleven. And I would say, don't go. And before I would go there, I would vomit. And not just that. I would have diarrhea. Every day. Every day. And going home, I would cry. I felt so lonely. I felt that I think I wanted to give up. I really wanted to give up. I don't care. I just wanted to give up. I just want to go home. I told my wife one time, um, she prepared a, a, a dinner for us. It's just the two of us at home. And then suddenly I burst into tears. I said, I wanted to go home. I'm not at home. I wanted to go home. And this is how bizarre it was. When I'm in the office, I would have, you know, you know, Tara. What is Tara in English? I would count. I would have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And I would count one hour more, two hours more. I would have a notebook and write there the precise minute and moment I would stay in the office. And that's, if you think that's bizarre, I would only be happy from Friday night until Sunday lunchtime. The moment we go off after the church, I would feel anxious. I would count the hours. Like, for example, 5 o'clock uh, in the afternoon, in the uh, afternoon Sunday, probably 7, 8 more, uh, 12 more hours before I go, in, uh, go back to the office. That's how anxious and depressed I was. No amount of good words could console me. I've experienced it. That's why I would say these, these are real. This is happening. I felt that. It was painful experience. I never wanted to go back. 
And so, with those actions, I want the church to be awakened with the issue of mental health. These people are not making it up. This is not just being lacking of faith or just trying to be KSP or kulang sa pansin or just making a fuss of it. This is real. I've experienced it. I'm not making a fuss. I couldn't make a fuss. I have a wife that I would need to feed and, and at that time, my wife became pregnant. Kung feeling yung nag-KSP ako, that's not the right time to be KSP. But I wanted to quit. I wanted to go home. I told my wife, we have to go home. But you know, God has greater plans for my life. And so, this would lead us into looking into our response. Have we as a church responded properly to these people who have fallen like Peter or those people like John Mark who are probably undergoing some mental health or some having mental difficulties or psychological difficulties, whatever you may call it. I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist. I cannot name it, but something like that. I'm ill-equipped with that as well. But have we responded to them perfectly or correctly? Because we have in the church an idea of triumphantalism, that we always need to be the best. We always need to be triumphant. We always need to be good. We could not make mistakes because the church will be intolerant for those people who are undergoing these things. Or if you make mistakes, the church will have no place for you. And I've said a while ago, we call these people who have those kind of tendencies that are weak, that they're lacking in faith, that they are, they are not just praying well enough or good enough, and that's why they went into addiction or went into that kind of mental health issue or perhaps that's the reason why they fell. But when we see and recognize that there are people here, even in this church, experiencing this. And we should not deny it. It's real. It's amongst us. It's in the midst of us. But people are just covering up because of that idea of triumphantalism. Because perhaps they realize there's no space for us. There's no space for them here. And so that would lead me to my second point. What should be our response? What should be the church response? What should we do? What should be our response as people of God who know God, who love God? What should be our response to someone who has fallen, who has an addiction, who has lingering mental illness issue? Because our response as a church is crucial to finding solution to their problem. Our response as the people of God to those who have fallen and to those who are undergoing shame and guilt and those who are probably battling a mental health issue, our response is instrumental to their transformation and recovery. We will be used by God as people, as a community, to their restoration and to their rebuilding. We need to accept that role. But we deny it because we couldn't be weak. 
It's against our dogma to be weak. But the Bible just gave us a glimpse. Peter and John Mark. But you see, I want us to see also how the church responded to Peter and John Mark. And these are somehow implicit into the text that we have just read. How did the church respond to Peter? The church obviously did not condemn Peter. We have seen him in Acts 2, that he was not just restored, he was mightily used by God. In fact, the reason for this is that he would be able to strengthen his brothers and sisters. Now, in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 32, even before Jesus uh, foretells that Peter will deny him, he said that he already prayed for him, that his faith will be strong, and that when he returns, he will be able to strengthen his brothers and his sisters. And true to it. Now, there is something implicit, implicit here that if the church altogether rejected Peter, he would not have become a prominent leader of the church. If the church rejected Peter because he failed, then we would not have Peter the apostle. He would not have become a leader in the sense that he led actually the church in the early church council in Acts chapter 15, verses 7 and 14. He, was, he became a prominent member of that council. You know, the church realized that like many of them, they too perhaps denied Jesus. They're no better than Jesus. They too also had fallen. They realized all of them, like Peter, are vulnerable. No one is better than Peter. And if there's someone who should be able to understand and accept Peter, it was, and it will be the church. It was them. But I don't know and I don't think we are responding the way the early church responded to Peter. When we look into Mark, who are traditionally regarded by many Bible scholars to be Mark the Evangelist, who is the writer of the Gospel of Mark. Of course, this is debatable. You see, it was Barnabas who first believed and encouraged him. And you saw Barnabas means son of encouragement, and he is true to that word, to that, to that name. It was Barnabas who said, can we have John Mark join us um, in our uh, missionary journey. Of course, uh, I don't want to blame Apostle Paul, but I personally, whenever, when I was reading it, I personally did, did not like the way he responded to it because it was very realistic, I would say. He was, he was saying, this is a difficult journey. If he doesn't, if he couldn't come, then don't let him come. Leh. Don't waste our time. But later on, this is what, about, what I like about Apostle Paul. He changed his mind on him. He called him fellow worker in Philemon chapter 1, verses 24. And he even said he's very useful to my ministry in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. So Paul did not say, oh, he's forever like that. He's forever weak. He's a forever weakling. 
I will not change my mind on him. Paul changed his mind uh, on Mark. God restored and rebuilt the reputation of Peter and John Mark. For John Mark, Paul called him a brother. No, the previous deserter, the previous uh, frightened, depressed, anxious, panic-stricken person, lonely, homesick John Mark is now a comfort to Apostle Paul. God used him. God intervened. So I'll say this, the response of the community, the response of the people of God to those who are healing, to those who are struggling, to those who are emotionally wounded, to those who felt that they are lost, confounded, or confused, is so important to their journey or even lifelong struggle to healing. There are people whose mental illness will be a lifelong journey. How are we to understand these people now that we understand mental health issues as a church? And I want us to be awakened on that issue that people are not just making it up. That people aren't just lacking faith. They experience that, and this is reality in the church. We must be able to listen, and we must be able to emphasize. emphasize. <clears throat> Brad Hambrick, and I will share this quote with you, he said, we will never befriend those whose stories we, could, we cannot bear hearing. So are we willing to bear each other's stories? Are we willing to <clears throat> listen to each other's pain, no matter how insignificant that could be to me or to you? Do we have a space to understand others? The church responded positively to Peter and to John Mark. I don't see any reason why we shouldn't do the same. Do we have a space for people like Peter and like John Mark? And I will challenge the church at this point as our response in that point number two. The church to be a safe space. A safe space for broken and for those who are healing. In this sense, as a church, are we gracious enough? Are we creating a safe space in our church that when things go wrong to people, they will not run away from the church? They will run. The first thing that they will come into the, to their mind is to run into or run to the church because they know they will get help from us. Or they will run away from us because they will see us as Bible-throwing people. Now, don't get me wrong. We preach repentance here because there's power in repentance. I mean, there's a change of mind. Uh, that's how we define it. And we're not belittling sins. We're not making it small. We're not preaching that here. Don't get me wrong. Don't understand what I, what I am not saying. But... I suppose we could make our church, the Living Word Fellowship, a safe place for those people who are hurting and genuinely make it a safe 
place. That when they come here, we can bear their stories. So, let me tell you this. Let us assume that I made a terrible mistake. That I had, for instance, an extramarital affair. And of course, that would disqualify me uh, to service. This is my genuine question to you. Will you harbor me? Will you create a safe place for me, a shelter for me, and perhaps my hurting wife to navigate around that difficult situation? Or will you judge me and tell me, but pastor nga Or will I think the moment I've committed that, I will run away from the church because none of you here, none of you, not even my pastor, not even my elder, not even the person sitting beside me will understand me. So I will just run away. And so this is my sincere question to all of us as we navigate around the question and how we're going to respond. This is my question. And I'm not asking this as a rhetorical question. I'm asking this as a genuine question. How do we make this church a safe place? Totoong tanong ko yon. Hindi ako gumagawa ng rhetorical question. Paanong paraan kaya natin gagawing safe place ang Living Word Fellowship? That's a genuine question. Ha? Hindi ako nag... Uh, nagtatanong sa inyo para lang magkaroon ng rousing moment in your life, para magkaroon ka ng eureka moment. No, I'm really asking that question. Uh, I don't have answer to every problem that's ailing this church or probably perhaps the questions that we're asking genuinely to ourselves. You know, if you're coming from the Roman Catholic tradition, our Roman Catholic friends could relate on this, you know, they have a confessional booth the priest will be there. There will be some screen. You'll be, you'll be entering there. Um, and then you will tell the priest of your sins. Tell it to the priest. No matter how great and grave your sins were, tell it to him. You can be assured that at least structurally, your secrets and your sins are safe with him. In fact, it was structurally so efficient and it's so safe, that's a safe place for them that, in fact, in law, you could not use that as an evidence against that person because that's protected under the law. Now, I understand we are all evangelicals, and I don't mean that we will be creating kumpi silent booths here. We're not going that far. Because I want us to create more than that. I want us to have not just a culture, but a DNA of a safe place. I want more than a confessional booth for ourselves. That even myself, that even if I made a mistake, someone here will understand me. To find someone to walk with me and journey with me, who will not judge me. That if that person finds that I have an addiction, to gambling, pornography, or I have an addiction to um, 
or I have an illicit relationship. Name the big ticket sin. Don't go to the addiction to social media or I'm addicted to eating or cherries. No. Name the big ticket sin. I can find a person who will understand me. Someone will be able to bear my story. And for those people who have mental health issues, for those who, like me, had an anxiety and panic attack, for those who are undergoing severe depression or anything, or those people who have suicidal tendencies, you know that when you come, you won't be labeled as nagiinarte, KSP, or making a fuzz, or wickling, or whatever. You will be understood. Your story will be heard that we can bear your story. Or perhaps if you have a terrible secret, you are same-sex attracted, you are deeply inside you struggling with homosexuality, or perhaps you've discovered that you have an HIV. How are we as a church would respond to these people? Didn't we say that we are hospital for sinners? But it appears to me we are creating all the time, not just us, but the church in general, we are creating really a gallery and a museum of saints. I hope that when you belong to this kind of people, you will be given grace and a space here at the Living Word Fellowship. That when you genuinely repent, that when you genuinely come, someone will be there for you. And I would say this. I think this is a search for an accountability partner. I'm not saying that when you fall, you, pull, you go to the church at this pop and say, by the way, this is my sin. Uh, we're not going that far. Have we cultivated in this church? And again, I'm not asking a rhetorical question. Tinatanong ko po ito bilang isang pastor, bilang isang kamanggagawa ninyo. Have we created an accountability partner in this church? Genuine accountability partner who will walk with us to create that genuine brotherhood and sisterhood. I was thinking about our CG, you know, when we underwent a very terrible problem, they were there for us. I couldn't thank them enough for that. When I needed a pair of extra hands to take care of my kids because we have to attend to a ministry, they were there for us. And I've seen that in many care groups. And I think we should create them more. How should we respond when someone falls and someone is undergoing that is very crucial. I'm belaboring that point because that is extremely important. If we want to proclaim the gospel. But this is what's happened to us. Instead of us becoming a safe place, let's admit this, we become church bullies. I don't know if I've become one. There are things that perhaps I've done in the very infant stage of my ministry. Perhaps I become a church bully. If I did text me, forgive me. Because in one way or another, we need to repent on this. We are all at times church bullies. 
We celebrated glorious talents in this church, but have we cried over the tears of someone who has fallen? I remember I preached about our brother Ravi Zacharias, and someone texted me that, aren't we not so gracious when you preach about that? I said, I will not apologize for that. That is a preaching on repentance. But on a hindsight, now I'm realizing the church would have responded also positively to that. Now, where if you are part of the leadership, you know that we are uh, doing this uh, and reading together the book lead, and that we are creating this leadership community. That my failure is not just my failure. If I fail as a leader, it's not just about Reynaldo Dandan's failure. It, it's also a failure of my co-leaders and the church. Have you extended help to me even before I fall? Because we all often pinpoint one, one finger to that person. Why did you do that? But you will ask, where were you when I was about to do that? Have you ever extended any help to me? Have you been kind to me? Have you become generous? gracious to me? Or have you become a church bully? I said this because the church has been and will always be an instrument in rebuilding God's people. This is our call. No wonder in Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 and 2, and I will read this, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burden and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, if someone is caught into sin, you who live in the Spirit, you who profess to live in the Spirit, should restore that person, not condescendingly, not inwardly, not um, spoiledly, but gently. Now, how to do that is also not a rhetorical question to me. Pardon me, I'm new in the ministry. I need you to be with me. When someone else has failed, I need you to restore that person gently. We can always go into a process. But I realize that restoring a person is more than a process. It's more than that. And that is why the next line says, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Meaning, it's a warning to those people who restore this person because we might have a holier-than-thou attitude and find yourself committing the same mistake you have condemned your brother about or with. And so, it makes sense now, the next line, carry each other's burden. To carry each other's burden is not a platitude. It's not just a beautiful word. It's really a call to us. And in that way, we fulfill the law of Christ because the law of Christ is about love. And when we carry each other's burden, when we become and we respond correctly to a person who is hurt, who's struggling, then 
we will be instrument of God's restoration. And that leads me to my third and final point, God's intervention. When we go back to our character, God intervened into their situation. He intervened into the life of Peter. We know that after that tragic and epic denial that he made, which of course definitely devastated him, we found in Acts 2, he preached the gospel, strengthened his brothers and sisters, and he was given the gift of the Holy Spirit and powerfully preached the gospel. And for John Mark, and I've mentioned, we've seen that he was restored. He built his reputation, as I mentioned. Paul called him brother. And the previous deserter, the panic-stricken, the depressed person, now, as tradition would put it, became the writer of a gospel. And how does God intervene into our lives? What would Jesus do? How did God intervene into our lives? And I would say this, God intervened through the gospel. The intervention of God for people who had fallen and for people who are battling with mental disease and for people like all of us is none other than the gospel. Because how God would rebuild people is through the gospel. You see, the gospel is not just something or it's not just a preaching for new Christians. I think you would agree with me that gospel is a preaching for everyone, even to those like us who profess and who claims to be seasoned and weathered Christians. Because the gospel message will never fade. It will never run out of style. The call of the gospel that in order to find our life, we must lose it for the sake of Jesus. And this is the paradoxical truth. And we could read that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. He said, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That's paradox. And you know what paradox means. Paradox, mean, paradox means that it's seemingly contradictory statement, but actually when you look at it underneath, it makes perfect sense. It's very harmonious. Jesus made this perfect paradox. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Isn't that when you're finding life, you will find it? But when you find it, you will lose it. But when you lose it for Jesus' sake, you will find it. Jesus' paradox is clear that whoever loses his life for his sake shall find it, meaning Jesus called us to lose and let go of our old, broken, shattered, fragmented lives. That is what we need to lose and find a new and whole life in him. Jesus is calling us to discipleship, and in that discipleship, God will rebuild us to build something that was destroyed. But also, and I will tread carefully in this, Jesus also will demolish and destroy us if he wants to rebuild us. Would you agree with me? Jesus and God will also destroy and demolish us and demolish something in us if he wants to rebuild us. God will certainly destroy and demolish our self-dependent peace. God will surely smash our proud self-dependency, our appealingly idolatrous completeness, self 
completeness and build something out of it that is only for him. God will demolish anything that will become an idol to us. Jesus will definitely destroy our fake security, our superficial strength, our false, false assurance in our family, in our wealth, in our health, or even in our own person. God will surely demolish it so that he could build something over again and a new thing all over again. And this is the paradox of Jesus Christ. That when you lose your life for his sake, you will find it. I thought I had my life complete. Then suddenly, God, Jesus shattered it. Shattered my surface peace and gave me the peace that passeth all understanding. The peace that will not be shaken even by the first storm. That is what God is giving you. He will remove our dependency even to our cherished loved ones. I attended a funeral of a, uh, of a family that was, who lost their mother. They were utterly devastated. And I understand them. They love their mother so much. And I know the family. They are really, really very close to me. And so I understand their pain. But you see, no matter how lovely and wonderful your marriage is, no, no matter how lovely your children are, and that's very good, they would never be a replacement to the infinite worth and profound relationship that Jesus can give. Jesus and God intervened into our lives through the gospel because the gospel is about resurrection and new life. It's about turning dead thing into life. But of course, this is about physical resurrection but I would say, poetically, it would also mean, and it's not impossible, that God will give us new direction, resurrection to our dead ends, and give new hope to us. God intervenes through the gospel, the message of second chance. The gospel is also an intervention of God because the gospel is about seeking help. The gospel is the first message to us that calls us to seek help. But we could not do it by ourselves. That it still rings today. If you think you are down and out, if you think you're experiencing mental health issues, the gospel message for you is this. Seek help because the gospel is about seeking help. Because the gospel presents to us that we could not save ourselves. We needed help. Call for help. Someone will be there to help you. The gospel is the first message that nudges and stirs us to recognize that we need help, that we can call for help. And if you are a Christian struggling with this, you're not weak. You need help. Call for help. And that is why Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we have not a high priest that cannot be touched, with the feeling of our infirmities, but one that had been in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Jesus could relate to us. His body was broken for us. He experienced what we felt. And so he could bear our story. It is also for those of you who have fallen, the gospel is about forgiveness. That's God's intervention. The gospel is a story about forgiveness. Sam Alberry, a preacher, said, Christianity is not about God rewarding good people, but Christianity is about God forgiving bad people. And so, I said this, Jesus is not a Santa Claus who's looking for those who is naughty and who's nice. He's Jesus. Jesus is definitely looking for bad, naughty, dirty people like you and me, whom he would embrace and clean. And he wouldn't just say, oh, by the way, you have a gift. But rather he would say, you are mine and I love you. Because Jesus is calling us to redemption. His message is about redemption. His message is about worth and value, not in ourselves, but in Him, the promise of redemption. And with that redemption comes sanctification. God intervenes through the gospel because His message is about sanctification. The gospel is about us journeying in this world, that we are called to holiness. We're not yet there. But you must realize that day by day, we are in the process of being broken, being pruned, being shattered to holiness. God is sanctifying us. So hold on. God is shattering the pieces of our sin and conforming us to his image. We are into the process of sanctification. That we are in the process of being made holy. I will quote again Brad Hambrick in his uh, article, Sanctification, A Message Journey in a Broken World. This is something that we need to have. We need the view of sanctification, the process of being made clean or being made holy that allows us to be both purified from sin without a guilty sense of condemnation because we're not condemned anymore. But we're still living in sin because we're still uh, in a world. Uh, uh, let me say that again. We're not living in sin, but we are in a world that is broken in sin. And we are still in this earthly flesh that could possibly fall and sin. But in that process of sanctification, God is leading us to holiness. He is enabling us to be holy. And so to be both purified from sin without a guilty sense of condemnation and endure suffering without stigmatizing sense of shame. That is what is required to be like Jesus in a broken world where sin and suffering are both common experiences. Because through this sanctification, through the process of sanctification, God will rebuild us. Because God, the gospel is about rebuilding. The promise of new life, the promise of resurrection, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of rescue and help. Now, in Luke chapter 22, verse 32, and I will end here, we have seen that, you know, 
uh, Peter um, was told that he would deny Jesus. And that is the truth. But also, we should not forget Luke chapter 22, verse 32, where Jesus also said to Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus also uh, foretells and foretold that while he would deny Jesus, he would turn back and he would strengthen his brothers and his sisters. In other words, this is also the prayer of Jesus to us, I would say. Your story of brokenness, your story of your pain is not yours alone. You will be understood by God's people. You will be heard and you have a space. Because your story of pain, of failure, will be used by God to someone else, to be the loudspeaker of God to someone else, to tell them that they too are loved, cared for by a man named Jesus. During the seminar in mental health, one of the speakers, one of the panelists, um, is telling us, and um, he experienced a tragic fall. And it was a very shameful fall because uh, he was embroiled into a scandal. He had an extramarital affair that caused his ministry. And um, during that time that he was being restored, he went to his mentor, and we often hear the words that we have fallen out of grace. And he said he couldn't understand that because essentially grace is about an unmerited favor. So fallen out of grace is something that he couldn't reconcile in his mind. And in fact, he's right. Being fallen out of grace is, I think, a misnomer. It has no biblical import. But he said this, rather than saying we've fallen out of grace, we actually fall and have fallen into his grace. That's what happened. And that's liberating. We have not fallen out of grace. We could never fall out from his grace. In fact, all the time and always, we have fallen into his grace to receive that unmerited favor. And that is the message of the gospel. That we have not fallen out of grace, but fallen into, fallen in his grace. There will be actions done by us and done to us that will cause us pain. And our response as a church, I hope, will that be of grace. As God's instrument of his compassion and being assured when God uses, that's an assurance of God's intervention to us that through the power of his gospel, God will surely act. May our failures, my dear brothers and sisters, or our mistakes or our struggles will be met by the gracious response of the church as God's assurance of his love and his compassion. And that is the call to the church because that is the message that we're preaching because that is the message of the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for today that you have led us into our study. We thank you, Lord, for the lives of Peter and John Mark, whom you have used 
today. Father, we pray for those people like us who have fallen, who are struggling with sin, perhaps struggling with addiction, who succumb to something that is beyond them, to, who committed a grave error and made a shameful mistake. And perhaps, Lord, someone here in our church is addicted to pornography, to gambling, or to drugs. And by so doing, they are also depressed and anxious. And Lord, someone here in this church perhaps is battling irrational thoughts. Their sense of self is decaying and they have serious uh, thoughts of ending it all. Or some people here have suicidal tendencies that they don't see their value or worth anymore. The pain is just so overwhelming to them that they just wanted to end their lives. Father, may we be an instrument. May we as a church respond to these people with grace, truth, and love. And that through us, you can assure them that you love them. And then they have not fallen out of grace, but they have fallen into your grace. And so, Father, as a church, may we understand the issue of mental health as well. May we also understand those people who have made those mistakes. May we be gracious to them. May we become a safe, safe place that they could run to us and their stories we can bear hearing. It's not easy, Lord. We know as a church because we have our own prejudice. We have our own pains as well. But you have called us to this gospel that we should carry each other's burden to love one another because this is your law to love one another so that we may prove that we are your disciples. And so, Father, I pray we repent as a church if we have become so ungracious with others, if we have called people who are struggling weak or they just lack faith. Lord, we repent. We want to open our arms to these people and say, you will be understood. You will be heard. You're not KSP. You're not Nagiinarte. You have a space in us and with us. Because like them, we have to be forgiven. Like them, we have fallen into your grace. And so, Father, for those people who are like this, Father, I pray that you will redeem them, that there is a message of the gospel that will liberate them. That if this gospel is true, Lord, that we preach here every Sunday, it must be true to our lives. That if this gospel is true, make it true to the lives of these people who are struggling with sin, with addiction to pornography, to gambling, and to those people who are battling depression and anxiety and pain. Let it be true to them as it has been true to us, O oh Lord. Let it be true. Because we could not fake it. 
Let it be true to us, O Lord, always. Let that gospel be true to us and to all of us. Father, I pray that you will use us. And I pray, Lord God, we're not yet there, but Lord, by your grace and by your power, we will be a safe place. Father, I thank you for today. Awaken your church. Awaken your people today, I pray. In Jesus' mighty name, our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Let us receive the Lord's benediction. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Christ Jesus, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore, in the name of our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen, amen, and amen. My dear brothers and sisters, thank you for joining us today. I hope the message of the gospel will see you through. If you need help, if you're battling with this, and if you need, you need help, call us, and we hope that we will be a safe place for you. God bless you, and we'll see you again next Sunday. Thank you, and have a nice weekend.